This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Online play tips. Museum secrets. Nerd trope worthy war movies. And the Navy's weird alien tech. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice rollers, the click of roll 20 battle maps... The Crunch of Doritos is still there, and everyone's got their own copy of Peter Frampton coming alive because we are in an online, possibly Zoom or Discord-enabled gaming hut. And when you're online, uh, gaming is different, Robin. It's not the same as good old face-to-face nose-touch gaming, uh, the best kind of gaming. Uh, But this is good gaming, too. So let's talk. Uh, online gaming. I know that you've done a lot of it, but since we're all uh, of us sealed in our, our dwellings, like so many hobbits, what, what what are some tips? What do we have? What's best practices by now? My tips are, are uh, start off with, uh, many people have questions about what platform they're going to use. And my advice is to use whatever platforms you're already familiar with. So if you know Discord, uh, use that for images and audio and uh, throwing up handouts and stuff. If you uh, know Roll20 or some other virtual tabletop, go with the one that you are most familiar with. Uh, they all have various degrees of uh, handling cost. You might consider, I know some people have downshifted the complexity of the game that they're playing uh, in order to not have to deal with a complicated virtual tabletop because there's so much more to track. So big learning curve as well. Yeah. So a, a subset of that might be to, uh, since you're shifting to online anyway from your in-person game uh, in this scenario, m- many of you will be uh, sitting back and going, ho, ho, I've been playing remotely for years. What is what is this new vogue for this uh, all about? Uh, but if you're if you're switching your your group and uh, you find the technical demands of a complicated rule system uh, too great, you might want to shift to something that is more theater of the mind focused. That is uh, mostly dialogue and description and the occasional handout, uh, which of course coincidentally is the sort of thing I specialize in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found that Gumshoe works really well in in this format. And uh, certainly Drama System is, uh, I think, ideal for it. All you have to do is figure out a way to keep track of tokens going back and forth. And, and you're good. It's all talking. Yeah. There's no numbers or anything. Um, Ken, you are actually, however, uh, 
uh, running 13th age uh, remotely and how is that going uh we are we are in the process of ramping up everyone's comfort and familiarity mine perhaps most of all with roll 20 which is the uh tabletop we're using 13th age of course is uh it's an f20 game so it it very much privileges the big combat and uh last uh game session in fact uh the player characters are mounting an assault on the uh, Fortress of Aornos, which is a historical uh, fortress that Alexander the Great conquered in 326 uh, BC. And they have a flying trireme and six player characters to do what Alexander the Great took 20,000 men to do. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, it was very, I, I said at the time, this is, this is possibly the most Arneson game that I've ever run in that it's basically a miniatures war game, but with people's named characters acting as, um, uh, as, as fighters and whatnot. So it was, it was, it was, it was, it was great fun. There are things that roll 20 can do that you can't do at the tabletop. For example, once you get used to it, or if you've cleverly laid in a store of JPEGs, um, you can fling something up. This is the uh, digital equivalent, I guess, of taking out the, the brand new giant blue dragon miniature that you've cleverly painted, uh, back in your, in your house. And then you bring to game session under cover of the dice bag and you pop it out onto the table and the players all gasp. Uh, you can do that with anything though. You can, uh, you can do it with, um, uh, let's say, I don't know, a Moria, uh, empire, uh, robot. Uh, you can just toss that out and, and the players are all very excited. So that's, that's sort of fun. And of course, if you find a historical map of the fortress of Aornos, you can just throw it up and that becomes your battle map. Uh, Bob's your uncle. That's very fun. Um, we're all still getting, uh, our heads around it and getting used to it, but it's, uh, it's working pretty well. And then of course we use, uh, discord for our, uh, voice channel and that keeps the pressure off this somewhat grotty, uh, roll 20 voice, uh, uh and, and videos, uh, chats. Right. I've been using, uh, Google Hangouts. Uh, and Slack. That's what I use for my Fall of Delta Green game, in fact. Right. And Google Hangouts is threatening to go away, uh, by which I think they're just planning to turn into a paid service that works essentially like Zoom. Mm -hmm. So at some point, uh, I will probably wind up switching to Zoom because Pelgrain uh, has bought a pro Zoom account so we can do our uh, online panels and stuff. So uh, that is the first point, what, what platform you're using. And now I think to more GM-like advice, my first bit of advice would be to leave in the socializing at the beginning, that there's something about the remote format, especially if people are also doing meetings, uh, work meetings, is that they, there's a danger of it turning into more of a formal communication setup where uh, you are uh, kind of right down to business. And, and, and that's especially something you might tend to do anyway, if you don't know the people you're gaming with socially outside of having found each other on Discord or whatever it is. But if you are an existing group of folks who know each other, uh, leave the same time that you would spend to shoot the ball and uh, and uh, talk about, you know, last week's episode of whatever TV show might still be on the air. Or <laughs> perhaps while um, the GM is desperately searching for a map of Aornos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, because the, the whole point, especially during... Uh, the lockdown time of keeping uh, game, gaming going, which is one activity that with this big 
uh, adjustment we can still do uh, while staying at home. Uh, the, the number one point of this is to feel a sense of connection to one another. So uh, don't leave out the part where you're uh, chatting and, and uh, small talk can be somewhat awkward uh, over uh, Zoom or Google Hangout or, or whatever, but that's still kind of the point. So uh, don't uh, don't be too businesslike uh, when you get started. Uh, my next point would be to expect a shorter session. Uh, there is an efficiency to play online. Not that the players necessarily get through the adventure faster than they ordinarily would, but the uh, amount of scene that happens uh, in any given game session to Cruft is probably going to be higher. Uh, and so they're going to burn through story faster. And that uh, requires you, on one hand, to sort of be able to have more things in mind that might happen. But there's this uh, also point, though, which is like, well, we covered as much story in three hours uh, remotely as we would have in four hours at home. That's actually the amount of story you want, right? It's like you already did the Irishman. Yeah, you I don't mean, need to do the Irishman plus an hour of special features. Uh, special features. Yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of that depends. I mean, a lot of it depends on your platform and the game you're playing. Um, I right now find that uh, a fight scene in Roll20 is taking a little longer than a fight scene in person does. And so that may be familiarity with the system. It may just be an inherent nature of the fact that you have to manipulate the thing, whereas uh, you don't have to manipulate anything except maybe shove a, a, a die six representing an orc around. I, I think actually that probably is true, that the yeah. simpler the system, the more story you burn through, the more complicated this system, the more elongated it gets. Yeah. And, and so... You can, you can see your, 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 uh, I, I would say, uh, that what you're saying is true for theater of the mind or, um, uh, rapid interchange type systems like that. But a game that is centered around a set piece, whatever it is, especially if it's, me uh, rules mechanically or, uh, uh, interface mechanically complex is going to drag out. So if you were used to getting two fights into your, uh, champions game, you may only get a fight and the setup for the next fight into your champions game in the same amount of time. And the difference I think can also switch around because like you say, you may be playing a shorter session or, and this is an interesting dynamic because many of my 13th age players are essential workers. They have to get up and, and, and go in and um, uh, do things. And so we're stopping at about the same time. My fall of Delta green game is much more flexible because the majority of the players are either furloughed or they are students. And therefore they, they don't have to get up as early the next day. And so yeah, they've lost track of, of day and night is what I'm hearing. Right. That is that as well. They're, they're, they're simple, beautiful um, uh, uh, undersea creatures just living by their own luminescence. And so <laughs> it becomes uh, a matter of just, where are we at a stopping place? And we tend to maybe let it run a little longer than we did. And we're also starting more on time, even though we are doing some back chat and, and catch up just because everyone's already eaten. And, uh, there's, uh, th there's just less time spent, you know, uh, no, no, no one's stuck in transit. The pita bread. We're not waiting for anybody. Yeah. It, it, we don't have a, a situation there. So I think you can go, uh, I think you're right that the, that the game will be more compressed in uh, theater of the mind type games, at least. But 
it's very, very much going to be about the individual dynamic of your player group. And, and certainly, of course, if one player has to go work at a grocery store, uh, for God's sake, don't be that jerk who says, Oh, let's all play till midnight. Um, let them go to bed and get up and, uh, go to work healthy and, and make sure that everyone gets their cocoa puffs. Right. And, and furniture comfort yeah. uh, is also an issue. I know certainly I find it more challenging to continue sitting in the office chair that I've been in all day already yeah, that, that i am discovering is a is is a uh very suboptimal plan is to be in my in in my um uh, desk chair for the entire game and then think well time to go to work no no it is not it's time to go lie on the couch this chair is a it's a lovely chair but it is it is not where i want to spend uh 12 hours a day the next bit of advice i would give is uh if you can coax your players into using an online dice app rather than physically rolling their dice and, and telling you the result, you should do that. Uh, not because you distrust your players, of course, because you wouldn't be playing with players who would cheat their roles, yeah. uh, but rather the shared suspense of everybody seeing a die roll uh, come up on the, their Slack channel or Discord or, or, again, whatever it is, is an extra little frisson of suspense and either... Uh, than excitement or disappointment that then everybody gets to share in the way that they typically don't unless you all sit around a table and see each other's die rolls. Mm-hmm. So uh, for the first time uh, in years, I'm everybody is seeing the results of that crucial preparedness or composure res- uh, role mm-hmm. all at one time. Yeah. And uh, that is a bit of added excitement that, you know, it's <laughs> elemental to role-playing, but it, it's actually sharper in remote. Yeah. The, uh, the, the player's reaction when the uh, monsters are rolling twenties in, uh, uh, 13th age is far more dramatic than it used to be when it was rolled over on my DM table. And then I would tell them about it later. <laughs> and then that sort of biochemical juice, just the, you know, moment of suspense release it helps to make up a little bit for the lack of the biochemical juice that comes from seeing people. And so, you know, you know, get your, get your brain methadone where you can, I guess. Um, you were talking about using a, a, a Google doc to keep the campaign journal, uh, the Slack also, obviously you can just put up a channel where everyone uh, dumps their, their notes or their, or their whatever. I, I think you're right though, that, since you're online anyway, you might as well be keeping your notes online, right? Yeah, the, the advantage of Google Docs over just dr- dumping it in the in the Slack, and I do some stuff in the Slack, like drop my little profile pics of people. Actually, unusually in this current game, mm-hmm. I've said the note-taking is all up to you. I'm not doing anything other than dropping pictures of people with their names into uh, the Slack channel. But that well, enables... I always make the note-taking up, up to the players, yeah. So, so that <laughs> enables them to edit each other's stuff and move things around in a way that isn't quite as uh, uh, facile in uh, a Slack or Discord. Right, yeah. Um, another uh, super practical quick note is, uh, and this is for players as well as for GMs, if you are reliant on communicating with a device that has a battery, make sure that device is fully charged. Uh, <laughs> we had one of our <laughs> players discover uh, in the first Playing session. on your phone instead of your desktop. Yeah. Or, or just this mic turns out to be battery powered. Who knew? <laughs> it never came up before. <laughs> yeah. The main issue that I find that is very different in uh, remote play is player spotlight allocation. That uh, both Zoom and uh, Google Hangouts do a really good job of throwing up whoever happens to be talking. And you see that little bar where you get to see everybody. Uh, but uh, especially if some people are, are dialing in on audio uh, and not 
uh, audio and video, or but but just in general, it, it's harder to keep track of who has all had a scene. And I think it's easier for some players to sort of relax back into sitting back and uh, letting other people do things. Uh, that brings up the uh, age-old question of does someone who is not actively seeking participation wish to participate and should you have them do it? But uh, there are examples of, uh, you know, evenings where someone who would typically be more action forward in live play uh, is is not so much in this one. And so you have to, I think, be uh, careful to make sure that everybody is getting their their moment in, except for players who you already are totally sure are actually would rather, you know, sort of watch and support rather than, you know, take the lead in scenes. And then that sort of feeds into the other big drawback I find with online play is that it's hard to read the room as the GM. And so uh, it's easy to do it in person. I mean, that's literally we're evolved to do it. And so you can quickly cast around who's paying attention, who's involved, who's excited, who's a little trepidatious about where you're going with this. And you can adjust your play on the fly. And if you're a experienced GM, you almost do it subconsciously. And uh, in the same way that you don't, you know, control your facial expression when you're talking to someone, your, your, you know, your, your subconscious does that. And so when you are running a game remotely, though, you don't have that feedback. Even if everyone's on video, it's just the bandwidth is lower and the amount of effort it takes to look at everyone's face is higher. And you, especially as you say, if someone's got a bad connection, so they're coming in as a, as a crumbly bunch of pixels, or if they're a, just a little icon because they're coming in, um, in voice only, uh, it is hard to, to, to pay attention to, to player feedback. And obviously, if you're playing a horror game, it's very important to get player feedback because, first of all, it's the whole point. And second of all, uh, if you are going into an area that um, that might be a little iffy for a player, it's harder to see them get the, oh, I don't like this uh, look and uh, and adjust. And so if you're playing with some sort of X card or other sort of um, uh, content warning tool, this is certainly the time I would think to get uh, figure out how you're going to do that in the in the virtual tabletop as well, because the last thing you want to do is grievously uh, offend or traumatize someone when they are already trapped in their house um, uh, like a vole. And uh, that's uh, that's not a good look in in live play. And it's a very bad look uh, online. Yeah. And, and conversely, uh, if you're playing, be sure to you know, uh, be communicative that, uh, not just in terms of being quick to warn everybody if they're entering into territory you don't want to venture into, but just, um, make sure you participate, make sure that you're expressive and realize that, uh, you need to bring more energy to the experience because the, uh, energy of the in-person dynamic is, uh, is absent. Um, and, uh, at this point, I, I think we pretty much, uh, covered my list of tips. So, uh, let us, uh, disconnect from uh, this segment and uh, uh, see what other segment we might uh, connect to uh, once we've experienced this oh-so-beautiful and soothing commercial. (laughs) 
They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And the missing and the lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press Store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The swing of the pickaxe, the slope of the piff helmet, and in this case, the tap, tap, tap of uh, keyboards while they're uh, rendering complex uh, visual objects tell us that we are uh, once more in proximity to the archaeology hut. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Amika Arexinen has the following question for us. Apparently, museums like to keep 3D scans of their collection away from the public eye to supposedly protect their business interests. That sounds incredibly suspicious. <laughs> what terrible blasphemies are they hiding? And uh, Amiko points us to an article in uh, Reason uh, magazine from November uh, written by uh, one Cosmo Wenman. And uh, he entered into an epic bureaucratic battle. I think he used his uh, three points of uh, bureaucracy spend uh, with the Egyptian Museum and Papyrus Collection in Berlin. And uh, they have been, uh, like many uh, major uh, museums, uh, particularly antiquities museums, making 3D scans of their sculptural objects. But like many of them, the Egyptian Museum and Papyrus Collection has been less than forthcoming in sharing the fruits of their academic labor. And it turns out that this is a publicly funded institution that is subject to freedom of information uh, law. And so... Wenman uh, was able to go through a multi-step process of dragging access to uh, the 3D model uh, from the grudging, clasping hands of uh, the uh, people in charge of uh, the this particular museum. Their initial argument was, oh no, this will decrease the value of the tchotchkes that we sell in our uh, in our gift shop. 
And yes, it's true that gift shops do support museums, but that seems like not a satisfactory answer because uh, they can't possibly sell that much stuff. And Ken, you might think that it's just because sometimes that scholars who work very hard on things are territorial about their work and don't want to share it on basic emotional, uh, intellectual greed, but that can't possibly be the case, can't it? No, uh, and it can't be um, uh, institutional stultification and cowardice or a unseemly uh, dragon's horde attitude to virtually all cases, public domain treasures that were glommed onto under circumstances that perhaps do not bear close examination. That can't be it either. <laughs> yes. uh, it must be something else. And of course, uh, the interesting thing to me is that some museums have figured it out. So the Smithsonian, which as we all know, has been hiding giants and ancient aliens and uh, crazy Lemurian technology. Uh, they maintain their public collection. Uh, all their 3D scans are out there. And so they're, they're, they're putting up a smoke screen. So I want to urge all the other museums with the secret Templar corpses in their basement, put out the public stuff. Only a very few researchers are going to realize that the Cellini Baphomet is not, is, is not out there in your, in your public digitizations. So right there, the amount of, of, of Zorus you have to go through is going to be cut back. Yeah. I think that the, um, uh, a lot of it is that these institutional problems we've talked about, but others is that as we know, magically to make a perfect image of something is to have power over it. And it doesn't much matter who has power over, let's say, a, a given statue somewhere. But if you have magic power. In this case, power, the bust of Nefertiti. If you have magic power over the bust of Nefertiti, that's a bigger deal. Or a magic power over Michelangelo's David, which has also been 3D scanned and is being kept from us. Or Rodin's Gates of Hell, uh, which is the sort of thing that you might think, goodness, that is the sort of thing that magical power over might be uh, a valuable in some way. Uh, and and uh, I think that a lot of it is going to depend on not just the museum's bureaucracy, but uh, how many practicing warlocks they have on staff. Right, Robin? Right. Um, and of course, the, the, the next thing that comes to mind, the whole reason that they're supposed, the whole gift shop excuse alludes to the fact that you could just print up your own uh, Nefertiti's bust and then have it to sell or turn into a lamp or, or whatever it is that you want to do. And of course, the more infernal the item, the greater the threat that uh, would be posed if suddenly everybody was just uh, printing up the, the dark things in the basement. And so if you have, uh, for example, let's say a pallid mask uh, with a uh, star map to uh, Aldebaran on the back, uh, some sort of uh, glyphs that reference the Hyades, uh, you do not want people just uh, making plastic versions of that and, and wearing them around uh, because uh, that could, uh, you know, cause uh, mass possessions by Carcosan entities. And here we we think that, oh, well, perhaps these bureaucratic state entities are, you know, uh, looking out for us. They don't want just anybody printing out artifacts that uh, then would uh, have uh, power. Same reason you don't put the hydrogen bomb plans online, even if you are the University of Chicago. Exactly. Um, and so right. uh, that could be a part of it as well. There's a third option, however, which is that the uh, thing that these institutions are trying to conceal is that these objects, once studied with 3D technology, turn out to be suspiciously perfect. 
And if you scan Nefertiti's bust and then look at it and go, wait a minute, all of these imperfections that I thought were physically part of this object when it was made by its sculptors, now that we're looking at it, we can see that, in fact, those are all the results of an algorithm meant to trick us into thinking that this item is handmade, when, in fact, it is too mathematically perfect. And so is the David, and so is every other sculpture they're looking at. And it could well be that uh, museums have, through this means, discovered that we are, in fact, living in a simulation, and that all of these great works of art are are too perfect or uh, imperfectly imperfect, uh, however you want to look at it, and that, in fact, they are evidence that we are all, you know, we're, we're in the matrix. So the notion is that we're in Plato's cave and great art extrudes itself from the world of forms into our universe. And thus there must be some sort of methodology by which the world of forms communicates with an artist. And that can either be uh, a ritual, right? Or it can be, uh, I, I suppose it could be genetic. Uh, it could be just a, a, a chance uh, combination of, of RNA that opens you up to transmissions from the uh, the outside world, the uh, Zion instead of the Matrix or uh, the, the the world of forms. Um, or it can be that the beings on the other side of the cave, outside the cave, the beings of the world of forms are sending these as messages or as programs into our simulation. Because if you're if you're saying that we're we're a simulation, what happens uh, what is the de- definition of something that comes in from the outside of the simulation? It's a program. It's coding, right? That these art ar- objects exist to create uh, subroutines, to to drive action, and that perhaps uh, a, a cross-cultural analysis of all of the uh, uh, art that indicates uh, through its mathematical qualities that it, it does come from the world of forms or from the uh, uh, the plerima, if you want to get Gnostic about it, that they're all connected in some sort of uh, hologrammatic uh, acupuncture system, right? Uh, punching into our, our uh, virtual chakras as, as a, not just as a planet, but as a uh, artosphere, right? Right. Or it could be that existence does exist, but we're not it. That we are, in fact, a very complicated simulation of a real world uh, run by social scientists, alien or otherwise. Uh, but if we discover that, we wreck their experiment. And so they have created these uh, safeguards and they, it's sort of inescapable. They have to have these works of art in the simulation in order for, you know, if you, that's a, a it would be a major control factor taken out of the experiment if you just said, well, no great works of art, mm-hmm. at least no sculptures. Um, yep. And so, uh, well, the, I mean, that, that, that could explain modernism, Robin. Right. <laughs> they figured it out, right? It's like, oops, you know, Rodan was the last one. And what the, and the problem is, is that if we uh, discover looking at the 3D scans that we're in a simulation, we achieve self-awareness within the simulation. And therefore we have to be kept alive because then uh, we achieve actual true sentience. And uh, ethically, they then have to keep all of the servers going forever. It's wrecked their experiment, but mm-hmm. they still have to continue to pay all the upkeep and maintenance because they've uh, got all of this true artificial intelligence that they've uh, created. And not only uh, is it very awful to look at when uh, the people in the simulation achieve sapience, but it's very expensive and costs a lot of money in their university budgets. 
Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you have to employ entire IT people just to keep all the servers going. And that experiment is, is, uh, is useless to you. So it's something that they, uh, devoutly wish to avoid. I'll tell you what, it, it's a good thing that they've got that gift shop. Exactly. Bringing yes. the money, uh, from scans of all the perfect art in their universe. <gasps> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Robin, it's simulations all the way down. Oh no. Oh, well, we better get out, out of here before we're in a simulation loop forever. Uh, only a commercial can stop this from happening. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Prevent this podcast from being locked away in a German museum by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Daniel Gill. Dan O'Hanlon. Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. And Hyperlexic. The whir of the projector, the curl of the smoke past the lighted screen, the whatever that is on the floor beneath our feet, Welcome us once more to the center row of the Cinema Hut, and here we are talking about uh, war movies, but not just a war movie 101. Uh, this is going to be war movies that are particularly susceptible to being nerd-troped. I guess the classic example is the submarine movie The Enemy Below, which was nerd-troped into the Star Trek episode Balance of Terror possibly without the conscious knowledge of the writer, although that seems a little iffy to me. And uh, the Germans became the Romulans and the destroyer became the Enterprise. And uh, that was a that was a classic, maybe the ultimate nerd troping. Robin, would you say there is an ultimate nerd trope uh, of a war movie? Obviously, there's war movies that begin nerd troped, right? Right. Um, so the, the one that I would point to as, as both the archetypal Perfect to steal for uh, a weird war scenario, as you would find in the Yellow King role-playing games, the war sequence, or <laughs> at, at any other, uh, is also just one of the foundational war movies. And that's uh, John Ford's The Lost Patrol from 1934, mm -hmm. which is uh, set during World War One in Mesopotamia. And it's about a British unit whose members are being picked off one by one. And that has already been nerd-troped as Annihilation and uh, pretty much... Any horror war scenario in which the uh, soldiers uh, presumably first a series of uh, 
uh, game master characters and then perhaps working their way in a convention scenario in particular down into the player characters uh, at any soldiers versus monsters setup in its simplest form is going to be uh, the Lost Patrol. Right. So I think when we're looking at the subset of war movies that work for this, you're looking at things about a small unit, uh, often one that has been cut off uh, from the, the rest of uh, the war and is operating uh, independently because that gives agency, particularly to the commander character, whether it's a sergeant or a lieutenant or mm-hmm. whoever it is. But it's a small unit movie rather than, say, the the films that attempt to portray an entire right. theater of yeah. war, an entire great The battle. longest so, day, harder to nerd trope. Yes, or Tora 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 or the Battle of Britain or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're looking at things that basically have a set of contrasting player characters, uh, often who have particular specialties. And and usually the enemy is that the, the conflict is within the unit in order to see whose philosophy of getting through this is going to succeed. Will it be the heroic lieutenant or is it a uh, a, an authority figure who isn't so great or has to be overthrown but rather uh and the tenor of these movies changes depending on what war they're depicting and at what uh, period of of the war they're they're depicting them um the other ford movie uh that i find most satisfying is they were expendable from 1945 Mm -hmm. that was actually shot still during the war so it has this interesting feeling of doom hanging over it the film's uh, about World War II that were shot during World War II tend to be uh, sort of more hard-bitten and, and bleaker than the uh, later movies celebrating the glorious victory in, in World War II uh, were concerned. And I think it is that sense of sort of tension and suspense uh, rather than necessarily one that is, uh, uh, you know, all rah, 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 that is particularly suitable emotionally for uh, horror-style uh, gaming. The director who I... I would most point to for war films is Samuel Fuller, who these days is mostly, I think, better known for his noir films like Pickup on uh, South Street or Shock Corridor, but uh, made a a number of war movies based on his own experiences as an infantryman in uh, World War uh, II. And and all of these have that sort of small unit bottom-up uh, look at the war and they're more realistically drawn than his uh, more stylized uh, noir movies. So uh, there's the steel helmet in 1951. That's actually a rare uh, Korean conflict mm-hmm. movie. Uh, there's fixed bayonets, hell and high water uh, with Richard Widmark from 1954 is also feels a lot like a Star Trek episode in that uh, there's uh, uh, submarines and then there's an away mission on a planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, Island. And, and so that's a very recognizably, uh, RPG-ish. Merrill's Marauders, which is a, a Pacific theater movie from 62, uh, uncharacteristically high uh, budget. It's a big widescreen movie. Um, but the one that I think is, if you only watch one movie and then just nerd trope a different section of that movie for the next eight weeks of your game, your set, is The Big yeah. Red One from I mean, 1980. The Big Red One is, it's almost on the bubble of a movie that is so, is too big to nerd trope. I would say that, that it almost becomes a, a longest day type movie because the scope just keeps 
getting bigger as the movie goes on, right? Right. Uh, but that's that's an entire camp- mm-hmm. campaign, right? It's not yeah. one scenario. And so uh, Fuller was in the 1st Infantry, and the, the amazing thing about the 1st Infantry in World War II is that they fought in a whole bunch of different major battles in different theaters, and so that gives you the whole sweep of the war from... Uh, so they're fighting... Rommel's tanks in the desert, and then they're uh, in Sicily, and then they take part in D-Day, and uh, this is uh, this is not a spoiler <laughs> once you're partway into it. Gets you all the way to uh, the liberation of uh, of Falconaw, one of the, one of the death camps. It is uh, Lee Marvin as the hard bitten sergeant, and uh, Mark Hamill as your uh, as your male ingenue focus character. Make sure you get the director's cut. Um, I think it's probably difficult to actually get the not director's cut at this <laughs> point, uh, but that's the one that has the full sweep of the uh, of the narrative and uh, was not because uh, the original was actually grievously cut on release, which is part of why maybe you haven't uh, heard of it because it didn't get the full reputation it deserved and did not give Fuller the career comeback. Yeah, it's that, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a movie that if you're a war buff or a film buff, you have heard of and. And love, but I think that you have to be sort of, you know, in the Venn diagram of those two things to be super into it. Because I think, like you say, uh, a lot of cineasts uh, go for Fuller, like you said, more as a, as a noir director and with the more stylized stuff that the the gritty realism of the war movies is not the thing that they're as uh, concerned with, with, with Fuller. I would to, to the list of uh, paradigmatic men on a mission movies, uh, I would uh, pick... And again, this is uh, nerd troping can be as easy as just changing MacGuffin, or it can be add a sorcerer or a werewolf or whatever to the to the to the men that go on a mission. But obviously, uh, where eagles dare, uh, the classic Clint Eastwood versus Richard Burton versus oh yeah Nazis uh, movie, and uh, Guns of Navarone, which is one of the great men on a mission. Uh, to destroy a MacGuffin stories. And again, as you say, turns on a lot of uh, personal issues within the team. And also in this case involves a, uh, a remarkable complexity of plot for something that has got a dirt simple narrative. And so I, I would say both of those make excellent sort of pre-existing role-playing scenarios and you can add as much nerd troping as you wish. Right. And the, the other uh, title that uh, we will uh, get typed at if we don't mention is of course the dirty dozen yeah right uh, with later uh nerd trope to suicide squad <laughs> mm-hmm. other uh earlier uh films you might want to take a look at uh, billy wilder's five graves to cairo that is uh takes place during the war but it's uh sort of suspense yeah. and intrigue it's, a, it's in a, a sort of a spy movie and it's excellent a spy yeah. movie in a in a ho- in an enclosed location and so that gives you a great sort of switch up of your soldier characters where they wind up uh, in this hotel with the spies and uh, uh, against a backdrop of war, because uh, when you're doing a weird war scenario, often, uh, especially like, for example, in the Yellow King, uh, you have a putative mission, but then you find out that the real thing you have to solve is a, a magical or Carcosan problem that you don't necessarily report back up the chain of command. And so that's an example of, you know, you could easily see the characters getting sidetracked into that and then saying, oh, yeah, and then we blew up those tanks and uh, we won't tell you about the ghosts. Uh, Rural Walsh's Objective Burma with Errol Flynn, another uh, darker spirited film made uh, during the war and also released in 1945. And uh, 
probably the the soldiers on a mission movie that most people know at this point would be Saving Private Ryan, uh, which uh, owes uh, something to uh, the big red one. <laughs> the children's chewable big red one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and owes a lot to other previous uh, war movies to the point mm-hmm. where the, the middle act is a, a parade of cliches. But in, in role playing, we traffic in cliches. So exactly. That's, uh, now, uh, and speaking of things that uh, add uh, war and horror together, of course, that's uh, part of Fall of Delta Green. So what uh, Vietnam movies would you add Cthulhu's to? I mean, the classic, uh, I mean, again, this is uh, the, the great example, and it's practically something that's almost nerd troped in itself, is Apocalypse Now, which is, again, a men on a mission movie. And it's also a Frazerian king killing ritual for some reason. And it's a, uh, a mystagogic initiatory journey. I mean, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's one of the greatest movies ever made. And it's already so insane that if you turn a corner of the river and, oh, yep, Chocho's, this would not be a surprise. You'd be, well, that was Coppola. He put it in, apparently. It's the extra super director's cut with the Chocho's in it. Yes, yeah, so the Chocho's are walking the other way going, oh, Colonel Kurtz, he's, yeah. he's, you don't want that. No, <laughs> Stay that's away from bad that stuff. Uh, and so yeah. the, uh, I mean, Apocalypse Now is, is the classic, uh, Vietnam, Death March, literally. And then you can also, I, you can look at, uh, most Vietnam movies are small unit movies because the, the scale of combat was, was generally pretty small. So depending on, uh, on what you want, uh, out of a movie, you can look at something like, uh, uh, We Were Soldiers Once, which is a, a or We Were Soldiers, which is a, uh, I think it's a Mel Gibson movie and it's a, about, uh, based on the book We Were Soldiers Once and Young. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, a movie, I believe, about Ia Drong, uh, the battle. But it's it, it again. It's very much uh, the the trouble with a lot of Vietnam movies, and I don't say trouble in a real sense. I say trouble in a nerd troping sense is that a lot of them are voyages discovery of the one character. They're your platoon sort of movie or Full Metal Jacket, where it's a a, a character and you follow them into becoming a soldier, and usually in Vietnam movies. Uh, out the other side, disillusioned with with the war and with uh, soldiering in general. And while that's a perfectly legitimate movie arc, it doesn't really maybe individual bits of the movie will hold moments that you can steal. But the movie itself is not particularly nerd tropable because it's not about the war. It's about the the soldier. Right. Uh, right. And so uh, in that sense, you know, aliens may be more of a Vietnam movie than a lot right, of Vietnam yeah. movies are. And so this brings us to our list of, of things that are. Uh, you know, already nerd troped, uh, aliens, of course, is a war movie, Starship Troopers. Uh, recently, Overlord is very explicitly a World War II horror mm-hmm. movie, which I think you liked, uh, a yeah, bit better I, than I, I did. I think I liked it, uh, maybe a little even more better than you did, but that, that could just be, uh, setting and it could just be how susceptible we are to, uh, Nazi radio towers being blown up. Right. And when you're stealing uh, from things, you don't necessarily have to steal from good things or wholly realized things. So the tank movie Fury uh, with Brad Pitt becomes utterly ridiculous in its final act, essentially becomes a zombie movie with Nazis playing zombies. But up until then, the sense of uh, being ground down by the uh, cruelty of war and being dehumanized is very strong. And then it just turns into another stupider movie uh, near the end. But you can steal stuff from the uh from the opening se- uh sequences of that uh that it w- would be uh, quite effective and tank movies in general have a strong uh, player characterness to them because a tank crew is about the size of a player character group and so you can watch a better tank movie like the beast 
which is about the Soviets in Afghanistan. And uh, the uh, Afghan uh, fighters are uh, left uncaptioned to yell mysteriously. Uh, and that's that's already sort of nerd troped. And the point the French were making uh, is that Soviet imperialism is of a piece with European imperialism, but it also makes it a very effective, I don't say horror movie, but it certainly has that affect, right? Or a science fiction movie where you are in the thing, you've got the four other people, and you don't recognize anything out there on the planet slash Afghan mountainside. If, if and, you're uh, in a tank, you are trapped in an enclosed space where everything outside is menacing, and that's a, that's a haunted house with with a bigger yes. gun. And then on a slightly bigger scale, um, you have your ship combat movies, of which submarine movies are a subset, but I would uh, call to people's attention Master and Commander, which in a better universe would have been the first of a franchise that would have been, you know, dropped every, um, every May uh, forever. But in our world is just an amazing techno thriller that just happens to be set in 1805. And so it's about a, a British ship that f is fighting a vastly superior technology, uh, which happens to be an American built frigate, uh, crewed by the hated French, uh, the hated to the British, not hated yes. to me. And so the, uh, uh, the, the techno thriller qualities very much shine through. It's a terrific, uh, Nelson era sea combat movie. And of course, Nelson era sea combat has been nerd troped by Naomi Novik with dragons. And I think a child of four could nerd trope it with, uh, monsters from the deep. So you can, you can add stuff to that as you will. Yes. And if you're on a boat, you're in a hostile right. environment because, uh, the ocean uh, wants to kill you even more than Cthulhu does. Cthulhu is indifferent, but the ocean actively wants to kill you well it's time for us to get in a boat head uh, across this commercial to whatever final destination awaits What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilization separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dad. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. Well, once more, we've entered that uh, most ill-defined of huts. So we're not quite sure what the theme is. There's like weird histories out the window. There's an alien big cat. It's screaming on the moor. Oh, there in the corner, our friends, the gray alien and the Nordic alien, they're sharing a kombucha and uh, their, uh, their ears although only one of them has ears, are perking up because this time we're going to talk a bit more directly about them in response to a question from beloved Patreon backer Andrew Miller, uh, who wants an update on the latest wave of Navy and UFO interactions. 
Uh, over the past few years, the Navy has encouraged its pilots to come forward with UFO accounts, signal-boosted the reports, and sponsored UFO research organizations, as if they're trying to stoke interest for some reason. And uh, also, there's a, a patent for a quantum superconductor. There's all sorts of uh, stuff to entangle here. The last time we talked about this whole nexus of uh, UFO slash uh, Air Force chatter was in episode 277, but more stuff has bubbled up since then. So, Ken, I think the general question here is catch us up to date on it. Right. Um, okay. There is a, uh, there's an ongoing series of, of Navy UFO sightings, as uh, beloved Patriot Becker Andrew Miller refers to, beginning, I believe, in 2014 with the USS Nimitz uh, carrier group. There were sightings of uh, flying, uh, oval length, long ovoids that were zooming around. Uh, they've been caught. Naval, uh, naval gun camera footage has been released very much like the UFO flaps of the 1950s. And, and if that was all that was happening, you would just say what we said in 277, ah, things happen. But now there is a strange uh, world in which the, uh, Naval Air Warfare Center aircraft division at Patuxent River, Maryland, hosts a, a naval aerial warfare research facility. And in that facility is a fellow named Salvatore Cesar Pice. And Salvatore Cesar Pice has been filing a bunch of patents. And his patents include uh, room temperature superconductors, uh, electromagnetic force field generators, aircraft using inertial reduction devices, a hybrid underwater aerospace craft, initialed HUAC, perhaps to inspire a little McCarthyite <laughs> paranoia in people, or, or uh, it may be HALC. Uh, you see it both ways. Uh, I, I prefer HUAC because it's more fun. Um, and uh, hypersonic uh, glide vehicles, just a vast number of things that he has uh, filed patents on. And well, crazy people file patents for impossible stuff all the time, and generally the patent office sends them a nice letter saying, Dear sir, you're a crazy person. Stop wasting the time of the patent office. And that's the end of it. But in this case, the Navy writes back, and the head of the U.S. Naval Aviation Chief Technology Officer, I should say, has written and got on a phone call with the patent office to say, These patents are operable. And um, uh, patents generally just have to be enabled, which is to say that uh, you have to uh, describe it such that it could be built from the patent. And operable means, oh, we have a prototype. We've made one. It's it's happening. Uh, and so it, it's, it's, a, it, it's not quite a term of law, but it's certainly a term of art. And for the uh, head of the Navy Air, Air Warfare Technical Service to be calling up and saying, no, this is a real thing, it's happening, is unusual at least. And it, it doesn't happen very often. It helps, of course, that Salvatore Cesar Pais has left almost no footprints in the scientific literature. He apparently got his master's degree from Case, or his doctor's degree from Case Western in Ohio, uh, which is convenient to um, uh, Hangar 19, not that that's a thing. Uh, and he's got. Uh, not a big number of, of, of papers. Uh, he has one paper that was presented at a conference in San Diego, but it's not peer reviewed. Uh, the, the conference papers are, are, uh, just, uh, to be sort of, uh, now, now he's over. not three feet tall with a bulbous head and gray skin, is he? Uh, no, he is, um, uh, from, uh, as far as I can tell from the pictures, unless these are very tiny miniatures, he's a normally sized person. Uh, he has sort of, uh, uh, orange, uh, or orangish brown, 
uh, skin. He looks like he gets out uh, in the sun a great deal. You can see the tan lines on his shirt uh, sleeves. And so I suspect he's out there, you know, riveting down pieces of the HUAC craft when he's not filing malarkey patents. And so the, the, the question is, what is the Navy doing uh, when um, uh, the war zone, which is a, a fun blog, uh, basically sort of popular mechanics. If you remember popular mechanics where they used to talk about, is the Aurora real? Uh, the war zone is doing that now. And, uh, and there, uh, a fun ruiner uh, is saying, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met the military, but they throw money at garbage and then lie about it a lot. And he also says, uh, that the specific language of the patents is full of uh, danger signs and nonsense words. Most real physicists would give up in disgust rather than read all the way through the patent document. Uh, since the nice people of Warzone asked him to read all the way through the uh, <laughs> patent document, he describes it as fairly sophisticated babble, which, first of all, uh, Salvatore uh, Cesar Pais, back off. That is my gig. <laughs> um, uh, to sound plausible to those who know what real physics sounds like, which is likely to include most patent examiners, all journalists, and Pais's own enablers in the Navy. And uh, so th the fun ruiner says it's because uh, this guy Pais has grifted uh, NALCAD, and now they are either still true believers in the perpetual motion gun, or they are uh, embarrassed to admit that they've paid this guy umpty-ump-zillion dollars uh, to, to, to build his nonsense uh, UFO craft and uh, are now trying to cover it all up by claiming, oh, no, it's a real thing, but you can't see it because it's secret and it's confined entirely to my kitchen. So if if we're allowed to uh, bridge this over into the realm of nonsense, however, this is a, a rich trove of things that can, uh, if released, uh, change the world. Uh, so you've got, uh, you know, perpetual motion gun, you know, right there. That's your perfect MacGuffin for... Uh, any kind of, uh, you know, modern spy or, or weirdness game, you want to get a hold of uh, that before the enemy does, or rather probably get the plans for it back out of enemy hands. Uh, but uh, what happens to the world if uh, there is a room temperature semiconductor? I mean, if, if there's a room temperature superconductor, all the talk about quantum computers becomes bootless because you don't need to make them quantum. You can just do it all with semiconductors and wires. They're still big, but they can do anything super fast. Uh, also, you can transfer with very, very little loss. Uh, so that makes uh, the ability to centralize and control power grids uh, better. And obviously, you can build those into avionics, which would be the whole reason the Air Force or the Navy cares about it, and means that your, um, uh, your avionics can perform more complex computations more rapidly, and thus your quality of targeting uh, and, uh, and, and plane control become better. So if you could put a a human pilot that could withstand 25 G's or whatever into it, then you could fly around. And of course you could build a drone that could do that um, uh, and, and zip around and make uh, insanely uh, unhuman turns. And that's even before you get to the inertial dampener uh, that goes on the HUAC. So there's, there's a lot of possibilities. I do want to briefly sort of on our way into insanity uh, talk about one of the things that Dr. Sheehy, the Naval Aviation uh, chief technical officer said in his defense of this uh, malarkey patent was that uh, the Chinese are working on the same stuff. And this, I think, is the sort of little dog in the night. And if we remember back to our last UFO flaps, those existed to cover up U-2 flights and to mess with the Soviets. 
And uh, it may be that the Navy is messing with the Chinese by announcing, oh, yeah, there's UFOs and we have them and we're building super weapons with them. And no, you can't see. And right, because otherwise the, you wouldn't put in the UFO part of the story into the malarkey patent. Right? Exactly. If you right. Wanted your malarkey patent to seem not malarkey. You wouldn't then add UFOs to it. And you would and you certainly would not say, oh, we're going to use our force field to um, uh, deflect meteors. Or asteroids, which one of the patents says, oh, this is a thing you could use my force field for. Knock an asteroid away from Earth. That's just a deflector shield like in Star Trek. That's all. And so uh, this could be an attempt. And I mean, I don't want to uh, necessarily praise the Chinese, but it seems like a pretty transparent attempt to fool uh, a, a, a great power rival into wasting a lot of time and uh, defense budget on malarkey. And that, I think, is the uh, simultaneously conspiratorial, but also best possible <laughs> face on it. I suppose the best possible face is that Dr. Pais is, in fact, uh, you know, a, a Star Trek scientist, not a real scientist, and has, in fact, invented a, a force field in a, a room temperature superconductor or a time machine where he went and got all that stuff from the future and brought it back. Yes, you could easily have, like, if you got this stuff from a UFO... Yeah, you you would have it and be able to work it and be able to diagram it, but you wouldn't be able to explain it. So you'd have to put in a bunch of pseudo physics. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, because we don't have the, uh, the the physical understanding of of what's going on, even if we could replicate it in a sort of reverse engineering build way. And we're like, I don't know why it works. Maybe it's quotons. Who can say? Yes. The the problem comes when the aliens come down to dispute their your patent with a demonstration of prior art. Right. Yeah. When you when when you've turned on the the deflector shield and the aliens are like, that's odd. Uh, that that uh, Sol three isn't cleared for deflector shields. Let's go look into this. <laughs> yeah. It's an old model deflector shield too. And it's, look at the energy differential on that's, that man. Well, that's that's where that PT boat was lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> During our our beloved alien movie, they were expendable and also aliens. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know that time when we looked to see if there was intelligent life to contact and decided there wasn't, yep. but we missed that. We lost that equipment. Yep. Uh, yeah. There still isn't, but oh man, this is annoying. Clever applause. You 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 can't do it. Well, maybe the aliens will just come and, and put us on alien Twitter. Yeah. So it's like, oh look, look, it, look, look, cute animal videos. Cute animal videos. Look, primates attempting to build a force field. It's hilarious. <laughs> Or they'll destroy us all and uh, uh, use the rubble to um, uh, power their spaceships. Who can say? But if this stuff is a real thing, regardless of whether it comes from time travel or UFOs, obviously, as you say, it is the world's greatest MacGuffin. Um, it could serve as the weird war technology for a sort of future weird war, if you wanted. Um, and you could uh, ascribe a similar effect to a crash weapons program in the 1930s or 40s by the uh, governments of the world attempting to resist uh, the Castain uh, Empire and then being suborned by the technology. Because, of course, that's the other thing that we know from working with the dark alien tech is that it corrupts you. It's a myth that uh, it blew up uh, to sort of reconcile uh, America's question about should we have used Werner von Braun to go to the moon? Was that cool? Maybe that was not cool. And so we have a dark myth of that where the Air Force is also using uh, kidnappy gray alien tech uh, to uh, spy on the Russians. And so it's like, mm, I don't know. An another possibility is that the technology is self-occulting so that uh, you might temporarily understand it and write down 
a scientific paper that fully explains what's going on, but then the scientific paper knows enough to rewrite itself into Bafflegab before anyone else can read it because it's trying to uh, control its own spread, either for benign reasons, right? The, a prime directive mm-hmm. uh, is uh, is in force or just, you know, the aliens don't want us having force fields, then they would have to figure out how to punch through them. And that is that is deeply annoying. Violates the whole point of having a force field in the first place. Yes. yes. And, and certainly if, um, uh, if, if the notion is that um, the technology exists on some informational plane, right, that um, uh, as uh, some people theorize that since all the, the universe is, is quantum positioning of tiny uh, uh, electrons and such, and that that is basically information, uh, that the information can therefore rewrite itself. And so when you write down the alien uh, 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 inertial drive, uh, you are merely, that is the act of making one, but that means it's connected to alien inertial drive, and the alien inertial drive can alter the informational space in which it operates. And that includes, uh, sadly, the patent description, which becomes sophisticated babble, uh, one read by nice Dr. Gubrud for uh, Warzone magazine. And uh, that points to another possible MacGuffin, which is a person with eidetic memory. If you if you know that your scientific paper will degrade into nonsense moments after you write it, uh, what you do is you have uh, someone with perfect recall, perfect textual recall, memorize all of it. Uh, and uh, the paper will rewrite itself, but the memory will remain in that one person's head. Now, as soon as they then write it down again, that will also continue to shift so that the only fully accurate record is in the mind of uh, several people, I would think, with eidetic memory. And then uh, that requires the aliens or ultra-terrestrials or whoever to then systematically wipe out everyone who's memorized the, the paper. And therefore, your job as player characters is to, after a couple of people get wiped out as you're trying to uh, rescue the final one, at least long enough to get them to another person uh, with eidetic memory who can quickly memorize what they write down. Yes, and perhaps that is the secret of uh, Salvatore Cesar Pice, is not that he is a path-breaking anime scientist, but he is just a guy with an eidetic memory, and he and he read the alien specs, and that's why he can file patents on all of these insanely uh, unrelated uh, uh, technologies is because he's the guy that read the the manual and he doesn't, he was just a, a math grad student at Case Western, but uh, the government realized he had a perfect eidetic memory that was somehow uh, folded out of informational space. And that's why he's been stashed at Patuxent River, Maryland. Right. Because the other uh, possibility would be simply that he can invent things, but not properly document them to the satisfaction of a technical writer. He's, he's from a superhero. That's universe. impossible. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not the world we're living in. Uh, well, I think on that note, it's time for us to uh, head out of this here podcast before it, too, begins to ineluctably change its shape into perhaps another podcast also full of nonsense, perhaps the very podcast that will be dropping a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astvagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Maintain this podcast's critical supply lines by joining such stalwart Patreon backers as... John Buckley. Carl Schmidt. Nate Merritt. Jacques de Villiers. And 
Coors Blumentritt. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag our top-selling design, Time Incorporated. Changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.